back to herbs, acupuncture, and everything else. This is Emma, the herbalist, and today we have an international guest and the second guest from Australia ever on the podcast. We have Moonly Woman, or Erin, from Instagram, <laughs> and I feel like every time I introduce somebody, it's from Instagram, and I start to feel like I should go outside and meet human people in the world, but uh, Moonly Woman's amazing. So she is someone that I found uh, based on her amazing information and content on women's reproductive health. Um, so I would say um, she is a functional nutritionist, women's activist, specializing in women's reproductive health education and explicit consent. Um, and essentially, I love your Instagram because it's this hub of knowledge that empowers women to love their bodies and provides information on a lot of diagnoses that one might receive from a doctor that might feel really daunting, like endometriosis or fibroids or myelomas or PMS symptoms, nutrient deficiencies, or just like general trauma, you know? Um, yeah, so I love your website as well. It's like a hub for women to learn and share their experiences and not feel alone. And, you know, I think it's also super important too that your Instagram is really like diverse in the pictures that you use too because i feel like we don't have a lot of representation um especially like people of color and women of color within like reproductive health too so i think that's also super super exciting um so yeah welcome erin hi emma thanks so much for that, that was a great yeah that was a lot <laughs> no it was so good thank you yeah i'm so happy to be on here and thanks for reaching out um yeah it's really awesome to see that my instagram is kind of growing and the information's getting out there because when I first started it, I kind of questioned whether or not I should. But after talking to my sister, she said, you've had a journey, you sit down, you do your research, and you're a woman of color that can actually advocate for a side that's often not seen on Instagram. Um, yeah. yeah, It's been really good being able to provide information that I spent a lot of time researching on and putting it on there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's so crazy, too. Like, that's so important, especially when we've had our own experience. Like, Sometimes we tell ourselves like, oh, I don't know enough or like, oh, who cares yeah. what I have to say or like, oh, whatever, like all the socialization, but it's so, so important because you have real life experience with it. Yeah, no, I do. I think, um, so I, I think the original reason I got into it is because I was finding out about period poverty and then through that research, I actually found out, um, well, I had a hunch that I had endometriosis and because mm -hmm. of that, I was able to advocate for myself to go see a doctor and get a positive diagnosis with surgery, which I just thought was amazing, is I thought it was sad that we as the patients have to do all the research, but it was really reassuring to know that all of it was worth it and that my symptoms weren't just normal, which is what I'd been told my entire life. And I think so many other menstruators and women have been told that like, this is just normal and you're just gonna have to suffer through it and there's nothing that can be done. Yeah. Uh, and so I just want another outlet for people to see the other side that you shouldn't have to be in pain. You shouldn't have to go through these symptoms and just live your life that way. Completely. Holy crap. Yeah. There's <laughs> such a stigma around that too, right? Or like the yeah. narrative of like period equals uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. Like you're meant to be in pain. You're not meant to understand your cycle. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just good luck and have a good life with all the pain that you live with. <laughs> Uh, yeah <laughs> very frustrating very I've heard that in my life yeah and so backing up a bit so you were Ohio based and now in Australia um can you tell me a bit about like how you got interested in this work and like that that transition 
Yeah, so I actually am from Cincinnati, and I went to college at um, Ohio State and studied world politics, which has nothing to do with what I do now. Um, or does it? I think it's starting to intertwine. I hope so. Like, fingers crossed. Totally. Um, yeah, so I actually studied abroad in Sydney, Australia, and my partner's Australian. So when I graduated, I moved back to Australia, and I think it was 15 minutes before I got on the plane. Um, my mom had said something. She was like, I know something you should look into. Um, she said, you should look into the issue of period poverty. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard of this, and she had just been talking about, um, there was an article in England about women having to use socks and cardboard and toilet paper as of like menstrual products and I was like what I've never heard of this how come I've never heard of this issue because prior to this I had done a lot of work in um, anti-human trafficking so Mm -hmm. I had seen that issue like that side of things um, working with young girls that had come out of uh, trafficking in Columbus but I had never thought of it on a bigger spectrum as a major issue Mm -hmm. and when I finally got to Australia I did a lot of research on it and I decided that maybe I should do something in Australia on the topic but what I was finding was there wasn't that much research for Australia much of it was Canada America England a little bit out of Scotland and so I started um, reaching out to some of the major organizations and government departments like the Department of Health UN Women Department of Education um, some smaller uh, women's rights organizations and no one could give me an answer. I got a, a message back from, I think, the director for the Department of Health. And I think his response was, we don't have any research on this. Oh my I was God. like, how do you not have any research on it? Right. So, I, so I think once I figured out that Australia was missing research, there was probably a research worldwide that was missing. And yeah, I think becoming passionate about period poverty, I um, realized that most girls know nothing about their menstrual cycle. and I had to ask myself, what is the actual point of a period? I mean, Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I never was given that education. So I started educating myself, buying books, looking at research papers. And yeah, just through that and continually doing that research, I got really passionate about it and talking to my friends and sister and mom. They're like, I didn't even know that the uterus was important for that or the ovaries did that or that your period was actually beneficial. yeah, so that's how I, so I ended up in Australia because of my partner, and that's where I kind of started my period poverty, uh, women's reproductive health journey. <laughs> wow, holy, holy cow! That's it's actually shocking to me. Like even hearing that that first study you said was from England. Yeah, that one was from England. Yeah, that's insane. Because you would think, like again, like period poverty is not something that I think most people would think of in first world quote unquote first world countries. No, you know what I mean? Like Canada and like America, Australia, England, like all of these like richer or like more, yeah, like capitalist or first world countries, we, we kind of assume like, oh, everyone can afford, you know, a box of like pads or tampons or everyone can afford supplies and, and everyone is educated. But is that like in your research, did you find that really wasn't the case? Yeah, I found that really wasn't the case. I was honestly surprised. Um, Like based on some of the research I found, I found in general that one in 10 menstruators don't have access to menstrual products. And that was a USA stat. Wow. Yeah, 500 million girls and women or menstruators don't have access to menstrual products products each month worldwide. Oh my gosh. Which is significant. That's a, a massive number of 
women and like menstruators using products that actually aren't, I don't know, aren't healthy. Yeah. Cardboard, reusing tampons, reusing uh. pads and just finding anything they can. And I just don't think it makes sense at all. It does not make sense to me. No, so it really doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like there's, yeah, there's even safety issues with that too, right? Like just even like san- like sanitary hygiene issues of having to reuse products. That's just, that really, yeah, that to me brings light to how it should be an essential service. Yeah, it should be. It should it should be as essential as toilet paper. Yeah. Um, yeah, you go to school, even, yeah, in middle school and high school, you go to school and there's toilet paper there. And I just feel like there should be free access to menstrual products. And looking back, I was so proud of my university because when I first went to Ohio State, there wasn't access to those products. And when I went back for my last year, there were like menstrual products all over the university <laughs> for free. Oh, yay! Was that because yeah. of you? What is it? Was that because of you? No, that was just something that happened. I looked back and I was like, wow, that's so good. Honestly, um, one of the major uh, influencers right now in period poverty is Nadja Akimoto, and she's kind of the founder of the period movement. And I think Mm. that might have been because of her, because she has a branch of her movement at Ohio State. Oh, nice. So I'd probably give credits to her, yeah, because she's been a really big advocate for period poverty. She's done so much work, and she's done a phenomenal job. Amazing. Yeah. And do you know, like, in what area is is period poverty most prevalent? Is there, like, a country that stands out as, like, the most in need? That is a good question. I don't know the exact answer, but when I've done most of my research, most of it is out of um, small countries in Africa yeah. and Nepal. Nepal and Bangladesh hmm. and small countries in Africa. And I think uh, one of the issues they find in Nepal is that many of um, the young girls and women are still sent off to huts to have um, their period because they're seen as dirty by their culture, mm-hmm. um, as unlucky. And if anyone touches someone or a person who's on their period is within like the vicinity of, say, like a farmer, that being around them is going to ruin their crops and ruin their chances of mm-hmm. having a good harvest. So they send women away to these huts, and they're actually having a lot of instances where um, these girls like young girls and women are dying while they're away in those huts whether because it's winter and they don't have access to heating oh my god yeah there was one story of a young girl who died in her hut because she actually lit a fire to keep warm and the hut actually caught on fire oh my god yeah so and i know in places uh in certain countries in africa they're dealing with the issue of not having access to menstrual products, one, but also do young girls and women feel safe um, going to accessible restrooms to change their products, which right. is something I've been seeing a lot more. Yeah, is um, do you feel safe to go somewhere where you do have access to change your pad or your tampon or your menstrual cup? So that seems to be another issue that I keep coming across. Oh my gosh. Yeah, uh, it's definitely like very intense um research to to do like even just talking about it i'm like feeling it in my body how like how intense it is like it's not just like oh we don't have pads but like in some places it's life and death yeah isn't that crazy because you don't you don't think about it um like because i know for me i've had a pretty privileged lifestyle my mom was able to buy me pads she was able to buy Mm -hmm. me tampons it was nothing i ever had to think about but i just can't imagine what it would be like to be in that circumstance. I can't say I've ever felt that firsthand, but I just imagine it would feel awful. 
and the fact that there's still so much taboo around menstruation um, is such a driving issue of period poverty and re- women's reproductive health. Yeah, completely. Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you for bringing this up too, because I think it's, yeah, it's super important. Is there anything, like, is there, this sounds silly, is there anything that, like, we can do? Yeah, in terms of, uh, like, period poverty as a whole? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, ways you can kind of go with period poverty. Many of the organizations that you can find um, in Australia, it's shared the dignity. In America, I would say the biggest one is probably the period movement. Mm-hmm. They kind of focus on um, gathering menstrual products, so people donating the menstrual products and then them sending them to homeless shelters and uh, like local schools so that schools can hand them out to um, like young girls in need. Uh, but I would say that we also need to focus on breaking that taboo. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like one of, one of the things I was looking into, for example, is when I look back at my sexual education in school, the only thing I remember learning about my cycle in general is that I can get pregnant at any moment mm-hmm. and yeah. I have sex, I'm going to get an STD. <laughs> That's all I remember. Cause I don't remember ever learning anything else about my cycle. Um, yeah. Yeah. And even when I went to the doctor when I was younger, when I was having those endometriosis symptoms, they were just like, well, you're just going to have to get on the pill because that's the only option we have for you. When in reality, I wish they would have told me more about my cycle. But because of the taboo around the menstrual cycle, people don't like to talk about it. Yeah. And schools like, I mean, sorry, schools in Alabama don't even require sexual education. And Aww. I think... Aww. There needs to be sexual education, but there also needs to be quality sexual education. We need to stop having this idea that periods are bad or that PMS is normal and it's something that girls and women deal with and it's just something that they're burdened with. Uh, We don't want to talk about it. Blood is gross and all of the above. So I think, yeah, like breaking that taboo about menstruation and looking at the history of it a bit more would be super important, like globally. Completely, completely. And I feel like, yeah, there's even, yeah, looking back at, because I also can relate to having a privileged life where I, yeah, I never struggled to buy pads or my mom bought them for me. And like, I went, I had, I had some sexual education, like I had sex ed class, but you're right. Like, did, when did we ever learn something good about our bodies or our reproductive system? Like, you're right. It's very fear-based. Like you can get pregnant. You can get an STD. Very scary. Okay, here you go. Yeah, exactly. They're just like, okay, well, you have a vagina, so you're bad. We're going to shut it off with a pill (laughs) and we're just going to keep going. And don't be wrong. I think every person has the right to uh, contraceptives, but I just wish that they're, I just wish that they didn't just want to shut off periods and leave the conversation. Yeah. I wish it was this is what a menstrual cycle is. This might be why you're having issues. Like maybe there's not enough progesterone. Maybe there's not enough estrogen. But yeah. right now, maybe the best option is hormonal birth control and you as an individual can make that decision. Yeah, that educated choice. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. there needs to be more education around it, I believe. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that's one thing with what I do with my account is trying to put out just basic information about PMS, PMDD, endo, fibroids, and mm-hmm. a little bit of the US. Just so, yeah, young girls can start understanding and looking at their cycle as 
something good, something that they're not meant to be burdened with. Um, it's something that's natural, like a part of their being. Mm-hmm. A fundamental part of their being. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's interesting, like even on Instagram, like it's a great, Instagram's a fantastic community, but I've noticed too with the work that my business partner and I do, um, if we post about blood or we post a picture with blood, and I know like Rupi Kaur, the poet also did this, like posted a picture of her menstrual blood and people are still really triggered or really angry or really mean about it on the internet. Like it's still not accepted, even though it's just you know, it's blood and it's actually full of nutrients and stem cells and all these things, people are still super against like seeing it, talking about it, having it in their face, you know? Yeah. And it's such a natural part of who we are. And I just, yeah, it wasn't until last year that I realized the period is it's natural. It's part of the environment. It's part of who we are and we shouldn't be shamed for it. Um, what I was saying earlier, actually, Nadja Akimoto, the founder of the period movement, she actually recently did a really big campaign comparing, <clears throat> like if it was just a, a nosebleed, people would look at it as normal. But right. when it comes to period, everyone loses their mind oh, because yeah. it happens with the women's reproductive system. Yeah. And yeah, it just blows my mind because it's such a valid point. If it was a nosebleed, people would just brush it off. But when it becomes to a period, it becomes such a big issue and everyone becomes so uncomfortable about it. Yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we need all the people we can get like doing doing this work on the front lines and on the internet and behind the scenes. Like we need all the people we can get. Yeah. Um, for sure. And I've seen on your Instagram too that you've got, you like you mentioned, like personal experience with endometriosis. Are you comfortable to chat a little bit about that experience? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess if we're going far back, I started my period fairly young. I was about 10 years old. Okay. Um, honestly, like, here we go, talking about menstruation and taboo. <laughs> Let's do I, it. I started when I was 10. I remember going to the bathroom and wiping and just seeing blood on the toilet paper and telling my mom who was asleep because she worked three jobs at the time. Aww. I was like, Mom, I think my butt's bleeding. <laughs> she was like, okay, I'll talk about it soon. And she woke up and she, I mean, her mind was blown because she had never heard of um, a girl starting their period that young. Right. So I pretty much learned from my period at that point. And then I honestly didn't have any issues with my period until about six or seven months into it. I had fairly easy cycles, tampon pads, still went to swim team practice. But when the symptoms kicked in, they kicked in really hard. I had migraines. I had the horrible menstrual cramps. I was stuck in the bathroom for about uh, about five to six hours, just chewing on a washcloth, Aww. constantly cleaning myself up because my flow was so heavy using a heating pad. And Aww. I think after a year and a half of it, my mom was just like, we've got to do something. So she finally took me to the doctor to talk about it. Because my mom's um, older sister was actually diagnosed with endo um, when she was maybe about 15 or 16. So my mom could recognize the symptoms. Right. And so when we went to the doctor, she actually brought it up with my doctor. And my doctor said, no, I, I doubt it's that. Just She just has a bad period. She's just unlucky. Oh my God. Um, yeah, exactly. No, and that's she, not science. Yeah. Yeah. And so she told me that either I could get pregnant or I could go on the pill. Oh, 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 yeah. And so that's what you tell a seventh grader. So yeah. I got a pill and for four years, four or five years, I did really well, but I eventually started having hip and back pain, which led to orthopedic surgeries at the time. That's what they thought it was. So they just did or orthopedic surgeries. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I had two unnecessary surgeries. Um, yeah. Were they like <laughs> but, surgeries? 
No, like, uh, so they did a back surgery. Actually, I started having back pain and my legs were going numb. I was walking and then I wouldn't be able to feel my legs after a while. Oh my God. And for about eight months, doctors didn't believe me. So they just put me in physical therapy. They're like, honestly, we don't see anything in the x-rays or the MRI. So I don't think there's actually anything wrong. It's probably just your anxiety. Oh my God. And I was like, Mom, I'm walking in school and I'm not feeling my legs. So finally, uh, we found a doctor that was able to do this test. I can't remember what it was called, but essentially he stuck these small needles into my legs and they were able to tell whether or not there was still communication um, right. going from like my hip to my uh, foot and there was no communication and he was like wow. oh wow something's actually wrong so they actually did back surgery and then a year later I was having issues with my hips they did a hip surgery and I still had no relief afterwards um, and it wasn't until last year when I started learning more about the menstrual cycle, I started seeing more information in my books about endometriosis. I started seeing more accounts on Instagram about endometriosis. And I was like, these are my symptoms. Like these yeah. are the symptoms I've been having my entire life. And mm. yeah, I gathered my research and I flew yeah all the way back to the US from Australia because that's where my insurance was covering me. Right. And I yeah, and I went to two doctors. One doctor dismissed me. I went to another doctor. She listened to me and she said, you've done amazing research. You should become a doctor. <laughs> like, she's like, I believe you and I'd be more than honored to diagnose you with this, like actually do the surgery. So a month later, I had the surgery and she diagnosed me with stage two endo. Okay. Which, yeah, which was, I, it's negative in terms of like endo, obviously the pain side of it. But for me, I found it really empowering to be able to say that, I was able to advocate for myself, go to a doctor and say, no, you're going to listen to me okay. and someone's going to do something about what I'm dealing with. Um, yeah. So I was diagnosed with endo in April, 2019. April, wow. Yeah. Holy. Yeah. What a yeah. goal. Like what yeah. a <laughs> surgery, so much invasive like medical procedures. And in the end it was kind of like, yes, your doctor diagnosed you, but you essentially diagnosed yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think if I hadn't done that research and I, if I hadn't come off the birth control pill to see what my symptoms were going to be like when I came mm -hmm. off of it, mm -hmm. I don't, I think I probably wouldn't have been diagnosed until later in life and say I try to get pregnant when so many women with endo eventually get diagnosed is when they have tr struggles with Trouble getting pregnant. Yeah, for sure. So, for sure. Yeah. And did they, did they diagnose, like, did they do a laparoscopic surgery? Yeah, so they did a pelvic ultrasound where they found ovarian cysts and fibroids, and then they did the laparoscopic surgery. And she was able to see that a lot of it grew on my bowel mm. and uh, around my right ovary and just around my pelvis. And once she actually went in and did the surgery and I came out, I had about a month or two where I had no back or hip pain. And oh, I wow. hadn't had, and I had experienced back or hip pain since I was about 15 or 16 years old. So that was the most amazing feeling. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And that pain was being caused by the tissue growing on the bowel. Is that? Yeah. 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 The bowel and the pelvis. That's absolutely insane that, that, that it started so young. Yeah. I think there's even some um, girls out there I know that it starts before they even started their period. Wow. Afterwards. Yeah. So I think... Yeah, it was really empowering to be able to say, yeah, I, I was able to advocate for myself and I think everyone should be able to do that. Everyone yeah. should be given a fair chance and a chance to go into a doctor, explain what's happening and be heard. For sure. Yeah, I'm really sorry you had to go through that amount of, of pain and like cross Atlantic flying and like... <laughs> yeah, that was not cute. 
<laughs> no, oh my gosh. That is yeah. so, oh my gosh. But yeah, you did it. And so are you like, have you from your functional nutrition training, um, like have you treated this yourself more or less or how, how has that gone since you did all this research? Yeah, good question. So I actually, um, and I just started my uh, functional nutrition course. So I'm not finished with it. Right. But um, when I first started kind of like my research on endo, I ended up, I like alternative medicine. Obviously, that's why we're talking. Heck yeah. <laughs> so I bought a lot of books. Like there's a book um, called Alternative Treatments for Endo. Um, I've met so many amazing women just like at the grocery store at the shopping center that have also had endo and talking to them like what they've done to help them themselves and they said nutrition is key acupuncture adding in herbs so I've done a lot of um eliminating foods that I'm sensitive to and allergic to which I didn't realize but I'm allergic to over like 25 foods and that's the biggest difference I've ever seen even my partner he's like wow it's completely different. <laughs> like oh, my wow. body odor has changed. My bloating has gone away. Um, everything like my vagina smells a lot better. And then I added a few herbs like Vitex. Um, Vitex yeah. is really good. I've been meaning to try evening uh, primrose oil. I've added in vitamin D, vitamin E, all to help my liver. Amazing. Yeah. And then adding an acupuncture, which has been absolutely amazing. I'm so grateful that I'm able to afford these extra uh, modalities of treatment so completely oh man <laughs> in an ideal world all of that would be also accessible and free yeah oh I maybe know. someday yeah maybe someday, <laughs> someday. In, in our ideal world in my fantasy land acupuncture is free herbs are free and all covered under healthcare, which should also yeah. be free in all the places but yeah that's amazing holy moly and so did you kind of see like an estrogen dominant pattern with your endometriosis? I definitely think there is an estrogen estrogen dominant issue also because of the fibroids. I have four fibroids and mm. do get ovarian cysts. Yeah. And just looking at some of the research I've done behind estrogen dominance, I used to deal with horrific PMS. Um, mm. And I've noticed when I come off of Vitex, I actually, the symptoms come right back fairly quickly. Right. And, and I also chart my cycle, so I do the symptothermal method, and I could tell that my progesterone progesterone levels were a lot lower than they should be. Mm. So I definitely think there is a estrogen dominance issue that needs to be addressed. I know that in the conventional conventional medical field, uh, endo and fibroids and stuff like that aren't really looked at as an estrogen issue. Yeah, um, but they totally but, are. Yeah, like like after looking at a lot of naturopathic doctors, like Dr. Jolene Brighton, Dr. Laura Brighton. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of understand that there's an estrogen issue and that needs to be addressed. <laughs> oh, for sure. And I think it's really like as a herbalist, it's exciting for me to hear you say that Vitex works for you because I think sometimes like this is slightly tangential, but yeah, I've heard like mixed reviews on Vitex and I, I don't use it too often in my practice just because I have seen it go like either way where it makes things better or it makes things worse. Yeah. Um, but it's really cool because it, it kind of like it adapts to your system. Yeah, it does. And I have heard, I've heard the same thing as I've heard some people say they took Vitex because they thought it was going to be like the key to everything and it actually made things worse. Yeah. And then other people say it's amazing. I personally had a great experience with it. That's um, so, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's helped me. So yeah. yeah, I feel like when she works for you, she works for you. <laughs> exactly. It just depends on the person and yeah, just finding a good uh, healthcare practitioner in some field that can help mm-hmm. you. 
And it's so awesome that you're able to give this personal perspective now to people, you know, because I think it's, yeah, it's, it's really comforting when the practitioner or person you're working with can be like, I've been here, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things um, that's kind of helped with the Instagram account is being able to relate to so many other uh, women on there and other girls who can, they'll like message me and say, hey, it's so interesting because this past week I was actually diagnosed with fibroids and you did right. like this whole post on it and it's super helpful, Amazing. which I'm glad that it's helping to give them basic information about it and what they can do. Totally. Yeah, it's it's huge. And like, yeah, you've even just looking at your Instagram um, and geeking out over it, I'm learning like lots of stuff that I didn't even cover in school or that I've forgotten since I graduated. And it's just like really awesome. And the way that you present it is really like digestible and concise and eloquent. And I really like, I love your stuff. Oh, I really appreciate that. Sometimes I worry it's too confusing, but I'm glad to have your feedback. And oh no, it's perfect. Understand? <laughs> yeah. And did you, did you experience like when you were getting your diagnosis, you mentioned a couple of doctors kind of like turn you away. Did you like experience any discrimination in your health journey at all? Um, as a black woman or as a woman in general? Anything. Yeah. Any of it, all of it. <laughs> trying to think, I think, yeah, definitely. Like I said, when I had, um, the orthopedic issues, uh, they were just like, Oh, it's just all in your head. Um, I, right. think, you're I think that was like looking back as being a woman. Um, I'm trying yeah. to think about ever ran into any issues about being black. Hmm. I can't think of anything specifically. I mm -hmm. do know that there are issues. I know that some family members and close friends have had issues going to doctors and trying to explain what's happening to them and being in such a significant amount of pain mm -hmm. and just being dismissed. And maybe that was the issue when I was younger and I first went to the doctor and she was just like, well, you're just unlucky and that's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah, holy Hannah. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like it's also there's just like you said with period poverty, like there's greater institutional issues that can trickle down and even though you don't necessarily like recognize that they're happening, they might still be happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's yeah, that's intense and it's funny too that sometimes the doctors are female bodied like people. They're women that are mm -hmm. saying, oh, it's in your head or oh, no way, you know. And it's interesting cuz it's it's a gap also in their education. Yeah, it is exactly like you. Even though they have a period. <laughs> yeah. but then in their education, they haven't been taught that their period has any value to it or that any of these symptoms are not normal because it's still very much like a male-dominated um, medical system, I think. So yeah. there needs to be a lot of change in the education that doctors are given um, totally. about the menstrual cycle and how they deal with those issues that um, people come in with. Completely. And I've noticed too, like your, your work with um, like explicit consent and like non-consensual pelvic exams really like shook me. And yeah, just cause I'd never seen anybody talk about it on the internet, like genuinely never seen it. And yeah. it blew my mind. Yeah. Could you like tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So I actually came across it, I think on another Instagram account, they put like a brief Instagram story about public examinations being done on unconscious patients without explicit consent. And mm. I was like, Oh, there's no way that happened. So I did my own research and turns out, yeah, it's actually fairly common. So they found, um, there was a study done and actually in Canada, and I'm trying to remember the exact stat. I believe it was, 
I can't remember the exact side off the top of my head, but it was on a pelvic floor surgery location. Mm-hmm. And majority of the patients had had pelvic examinations done without their explicit consent. Mm-hmm. And more than, <clears throat> I think it was 72% would have uh, preferred to be asked if that should be done to them, which I totally agree. Oh, yeah, I want to be asked if that's going to be done. And in the US, they've, um, Elle did a survey, one of the doctors, Dr. Jennifer I'm going to pronounce her last name wrong, but Dr. Jennifer Sai, um, she did a survey with medical students and she found that 61% had done a pelvic examination on an unconscious female patient without her consent and 49% hadn't even met that female patient yet. Holy hell. Yeah, so that's a big issue. And um, I know also in England, it's an issue. And I've actually gotten a message from a girl who's in medical school in the United States who says this happened. Um, I have not experienced yeah. it yet, but I've heard from other medical students this happens and it's an issue that needs to be addressed. That's and terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying because I've had surgery at teaching hospitals and it makes me wonder how many people's, how many of like medical students' fingers have been inside my vagina without me knowing. And the fact that medical institutions think because we sign a form that yeah. says medical students can perform examinations. <laughs> no one says specifically a pelvic exam. We sign it. And the fact that we think just because we're asleep and we don't remember it and there's no personal benefit, we don't need to know about it. Right. That's an issue for me. Because um, I – sorry. Huge issue. Huge. Yeah, it's a massive issue. Um, and just because someone's asleep and just because you you have the title of doctor – you're going on to become a doctor doesn't mean that you don't require consent, but we're seeing this so much more in the medical system. I think Um, you're hearing so many more stories about people having things done to them without any consent and just it being dismissed because they have the title of doctor. Hmm. Yeah, that kills me. And I think too, like, what does that teach them about like these, these budding doctors about bedside manner? Like it's, it's instilling this, um, idea that yeah the patient you know what the patient doesn't know doesn't matter or if they're yeah. not awake who cares yeah and exactly we run into issues because like, I was also researching um, like state rape laws the federal rape law and the thing is we obviously hear of stories where uh, girls have been sexually assaulted um, while they have um, been intoxicated mm-hmm. and obviously there's been cases where that is they've gone to court and um, that person was found not guilty. But for example, um, Chanel Miller versus Brock Turner, obviously Chanel Miller um, did all the work she could and Brock Turner only got 30 days, which is absolutely despicable. But we can all relate to that fact that she was unconscious. She cannot consent to that. So it's not okay. Yeah. But yet because someone is a doctor, they just find that it's totally fine. So I think, yeah, that's been a really interesting topic to go over. And I really appreciate that so many people have been interested in it. At first, I didn't think a lot of people would tag along with it because it is um, something that no one really talks about, like you said. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely something I want to address. I just haven't figured out what um, part of the spectrum I focus on. And I think you have to go back to, again, the way that doctors are trained, like what's their education system and how Absolutely. are things brought out? Yeah, completely. And I think that that, like, you know, I'm a believer in the unconscious mind, you know, perceiving lots of things. And I imagine that even if you don't find out, you're still, you know, occurring trauma. Yeah, I agree. And then people that do remember or people that 
uh, find out and later feel violated. Like how, how does one deal with the, the reproductive trauma that that causes? Yeah. Cause your body holds all of your trauma. Yeah. And especially that like the cervix and like, Oh my gosh, like it's just so innervated. Like there's so many nerves. Like even if you consciously aren't aware of it, your body is aware that something is happening that it did not sign up for. Yeah. And we're just also continually, continually teaching the fact that um, this false fact that women don't own their bodies, like that is not your vagina. That's not your cervix. For so long, my vagina and cervix never felt like my own one because of my history of sexual abuse, but two, because of the, how much I'd been dismissed from doctors with my endo symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So just, Oh, completely. And like, Oh man, like we're just like, we can spiral and spiral with it, but it's like, yeah. Yeah, the same idea of um, like your your body has knowledge and your body knows when something isn't right and your body can feel when something isn't right, knows when it's not in right alignment, knows what medicine it needs. Like we have just taken so much autonomy away from bodies in general, but usually female bodies in terms of like what you, yeah, the, the uh, how do I say it? Like the sanctity of your body and the knowledge it holds. Yeah, I totally agree with you 100%. <laughs> ah, so yeah. scary. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess like is when we talk about it and when you, you know, chat about it on your Instagram and you let people know is the hope that people will talk to their doctors about it before they go in for a surgery or before they have a pelvic exam? Yes. So, um I would love to change the laws and the policies, but I would say as of right now, the best thing you can do is if you know that you're going into a teaching hospital, telling your doctor, I do not give consent for any medical student or medical resident to do a pelvic examination on me while under anesthesia without my explicit consent. Mm -hmm. I think wording is everything, unfortunately. Yeah. You have to put it as medical student, medical resident. I don't want it done at all. Um, so yeah, I, I actually have a, like a PDF on my website if people want to find out more about the stats and then recommendations that they can do to protect themselves. Um, Heck yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Oh my gosh. I'm like, so, oh, I'm so blown away by your knowledge. Thank you so much for, for sharing it and for being brave enough to speak about your experiences. Yeah, no, thank you for letting me talk about it. It's been so good being on the podcast and just sharing the information that I'm constantly gathering (laughs) throughout my days. Completely. Do you have like, this is, I know this is like a a large topic, but do you have any favorite or like most recommended ways to deal with reproductive like trauma or reproductive um, imbalances? I don't want to say diseases because I feel like that sounds really intense and kind of disempowering, but yeah. So you mean like um, ways that we can reconnect with our body and deal with things like um, endo or PCOS? Yeah, totally. Because I've kind of seen like I know you have the functional nutrition side, but I've also seen some stuff on your on your um, live streams about yoni steams and just kind of wanted to know like any of your favorite ways to kind of get back in touch with the body. Yeah, my best ways to get back in touch with my body was, yeah, one, educating myself. And two, if you've experienced any trauma, um, don't feel like it's your fault. It's really not. I told myself for a long time that it was, and I kept it Mm. 
in in my head in my body and I told no one and that was probably one of the worst things I could have done because it just led to a host of other issues so finding a counselor someone that you trust that you can talk to and feel safe um, that's major because reconnecting to your body after trauma and just figuring out where are you holding your tension and why are you holding it there and what you can do to heal is huge um, and in terms of dealing with things like endo, fibroids, PCOS, PMS, PMDD, um, I personally um, like the natural side of things. So I prefer to find like a naturopathic doc doctor, naturopath, acupuncturist, mm -hmm. someone who's in traditional Chinese medicine. Because um, I just think I like to know the root of things and I like to be able to connect that, okay, maybe this is actually the full root of it, not just that I have endo and I have to suffer but that there is more research that goes back in the way that our yin and yang and how estrogen dominance affects uh, endo and fibroids. So I recommend finding, yeah, finding your best form of uh, like therapy. And yeah, if you prefer conventional medicine, trying to find a functional conventional medicine doctor. And mm -hmm. if you like more of the natural side of things, maybe like traditional Chinese medicine or naturopathic medicine, there's plenty of books out there that I am happy to recommend that you can start with to find out more information. But yeah, that's what I would start with if it was me. <laughs> Heck yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm all about the herbs and the acupuncture as the, <laughs> the podcast suggests and my life in general suggests. But yeah, I mean like, Definitely, hundred percent. And and yoni steams are great. I love them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so good. Yeah, they popped up in my life recently, and I saw you did that um, live with uh, Go with Your Flow, and I was like, hell yeah, yoni steams. Yeah, so good. <laughs> and I feel like that's another one of those things that um, people can do to get in touch with their bodies and give their bodies some love, while also you know, like potentially helping to alleviate some PMS symptoms, cramps, endo, fibroids, that kind of thing. Yeah, because, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of people out there with endo and fibroids that have done uh, vaginal steaming. Um, and I've heard great things about it. So it was definitely something if you, you're interested, uh, Flow With Your Flow is doing a live webinar <laughs> if you want to Yeah, look. totally. Yeah, if you want to learn, learn more. <laughs> I'm all about it. And do you have anything like up and coming, like next on the horizon for you? Ooh, I'm trying to think. I'm actually pretty busy at the moment. Um, so I'm doing the functional nutritional course, which I'm absolutely loving. It's only the third week and I'm just in love with the whole <laughs> thing. Finally gathering the information. And I'm trying to think with Moonly, I think I'm just trying to figure out um, just kind of more of like what I want to introduce on there. If more girls are wanting to know more about like endo and fibroid specific diseases or if they want to learn more about um like pms pmdd and what they can do to fix it mm -hmm. so yeah things are kind of up in the air at the moment but i'm having a lot of fun with it and meeting so many phenomenal people and yeah i just love it <laughs> i love it oh my goodness yes thank you so much erin for being here and again like you are so knowledgeable and eloquent and i'm just like so happy to meet more and more people that are awake to the issues and wanting to share their voice. Thanks, Emma. That means a lot. Thank you so much.